This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. It's March 14th, 1885, in Richmond, Virginia. The early morning is bleak. The sun's barely risen above the horizon. It's cold, and snow starts to fall from the dark clouds above. But Lysander Rose has a job to do. He's the caretaker of the old reservoir on the west side of town. Whether it's blinding sunshine or raining cats and dogs, Rose makes a circuit of the man-made lake and the greenery surrounding it every single day. The reservoir provides drinking water to the inhabitants of the town, and it's his job to make sure everything is working as it should be. He walks up the embankment and turns the southern corner of the reservoir. Something in the mud that surrounds the water makes him stop. He steps as close to the edge as he dares to get a better look at the misplaced object. Upon closer inspection, he finds a broken shoestring and a lady's red glove. He looks around the embankment for any other items, but he can't see any. So what are these articles of clothing doing here? Instinctively, his eyes drift to the water. The surface is black and choppy. The lack of light and the flurry of snowflakes makes it difficult to see very much. So he takes another step toward. His boots become stuck in the red clay surrounding the water, but he doesn't notice straight away. His attention is fixed on something else. You see, there's something floating on the surface. At first he thinks it's a wooden log. To his horror, when he looks a little closer, he sees that it is actually a woman's leg. Squinting into the semi-darkness, he notices that the rest of the body is drifting just below the waterline, clothed in a floaty white dress. Rose stumbles backwards, his ragged breath fogging the early morning air. He shouts to some of his workmen and tells them to bring the body ashore while he alerts the police. The coroner arrives soon after. At first glance, he believes that the young woman has died by her own hand. She's heavily pregnant and isn't wearing a wedding ring. Tragically, during this time period, women who had children out of wedlock were often ostracized, even disowned by their own families. The coroner's seen too many young women take their own lives because of the horrible stigma attached to single motherhood. Upon closer inspection, he notices bruising on the woman's left temple and upper lip. There's also a tear in the elegant gown she's wearing. Now, could these have come from her fall into the water? Corner doesn't think so. Oh sure, if she'd fallen in, she could have bumped her head. But the bruises left behind are in telltale places where punches might have landed. He believes they were inflicted by her killer. 
The coroner calls for the police, and it's Captain Charles H. Epps who takes the case. Epps is an imposing figure. Tall, with a bushy mustache and deep-set eyes. He favors tailored suits and crisp white shirts and is relentless in his pursuit of the truth. The scene at the water's edge is a sad one. A young woman and an unborn child have lost their lives. No one knows who she is, and there aren't any apparent clues as to what happened. All Epps knows is that the woman was alive when she fell into the water, but died before she could get out again. The coroner told him as much. She obviously fought for her life in the water and was able to grab some of the red clay that lines the bottom of the reservoir. But in her weakened state, she'd be unable to save herself. She doesn't have any personal effects and isn't wearing a coat. Could she have been robbed before being shoved into the freezing water? Or is there a more sinister reason behind the murder? It's a crime that'll capture the public's imagination and thrust the police into the spotlight. Each step of the investigation is more twisted than the last and will end with a shocking reveal. After all, it takes a certain kind of monster to commit such a heinous crime. So, who was it that pushed her to her death? My name is Mark Dodson, and welcome to Detectives Don't Sleep. Each week we'll shadow the world's most remarkable sleuths, real detectives who worked extraordinary cases. This week, we're in Richmond, as we join detective extraordinaire Captain Charles H. Epps. Faced with an unidentified body, no witnesses, and a lack of clues, this case has all the hallmarks of an unsolvable investigation. But for Epps, failure's not an option. He vows to fight for justice for the woman found in the reservoir, and he'll work night and day to make it happen. From Noiser, this is the story of the Red Clay murder. And this is Detectives Don't Sleep. In the days that follow, hundreds of people flock to the morgue to view the dead woman. She's just under five feet tall, with dark brown hair and attractive features, though her skin is mottled by her time in the water. Some want to try and help identify the body. Others are just being nosy. After two days, the dead woman's name remains a mystery. The murder inspires the residents of the city to become amateur detectives. They visit the reservoir in droves, checking behind every tree and overturning every single piece of trash they come upon. Their hearts are in the right place, but these would-be sleuths come away empty-handed. The police, though, do not. On Sunday, the 15th of March, they find two of the wooden planks of the perimeter fence had been removed at some point prior to the woman's death. The weeds that grew beside the removed fence posts had been trampled on, 
and some saplings had been trodden into the ground, indicating that a struggle took place. Now, if this is how the couple gained access to the reservoir, it's odd. After all, it's open to the public. A wide gravel path winds around the body of water. The views of the city below are impressive, and it's a popular place for those wanting to stretch their legs. There's an actual entrance a couple of streets away. Maybe the couple entered this way because they didn't want to be seen. The police also find footprints in the soft red clay that borders the water. The police match the dead woman's feet to the set facing away from the water. The other set, which are bigger, are believed to belong to the killer. Epps is convinced they belong to a man. It seems this is the point where the unidentified woman took in her last lungfuls of air before being forced into the water. Police speculate that the couple argued on the levee overlooking the reservoir. In a fit of rage, the unknown assailant punched the woman and then shoved her into the icy waters. It's only a theory, but it does sound about right. Another day passes with no identification and no more clues as to who the killer is. The pace of the investigation is frustrating, especially with the spotlight of the media trained on the police's every move. In an attempt to do something, anything, Epps and a large team of police officers once again comb the grounds of the reservoir. It's still snowing. Despite the gloves they wear, the police officers' fingers are getting numb. They crawl on their hands and knees through freezing cold puddles and long wet grass. An unforgiving wind howls constantly around the grounds of the reservoir, stinging the officers' cheeks. The search is grueling and there's dissent in the air. Darkness draws in and reluctantly, Epps agrees to end the day's search. He grabs one of the gas lamps and walks towards the area with the removed fence post. Then, he spots something. Among the thick weeds, something twinkles in the light given off by his lamp. He kneels down and reaches a gloved hand towards it, pushing the worst of the thorns out of the way. His hand fastens around a small metal object. When he takes a closer look, he sees that he's uncovered a gold key type of key used to wind up a pocket watch. Now, these were fairly common. Any of the hundreds of people who'd visited the crime scene in the last couple of days could have dropped it. Still, at least it's something to go on. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects, 
a vacuum cleaner in your cupboard. Sleek and compact today. But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground up bones and oyster shells. Double glazed windows. We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The curious history of your home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. The next day, Epps takes the key to various jewelry shops in the city. The jewelers take a good look at the piece and comment on how rare this particular key is nowadays. It's an older model, but a very expensive one. Maybe it's been handed down from generation to generation. Now that could indicate that whoever it belonged to was a man of good standing. Again, it's just a theory. But at the moment, that's all he's got. Epps strikes out in every shop he visits. No one's seen the specific key before. That is, until he visits a store owned by Herman Joel. Epps pessimistically hands the key over. Joel uses a magnifying glass to study it. After some careful examination, Joel claims that he has seen the key before. Not only that, but the jeweler has done some repair work on the watch it belonged to recently. Is this the break in the case the detective has been waiting for? Well, not quite. You see, Joel might have repaired the watch, but he didn't think to take the name of the owner or where he lives. In fact, he knows nothing about the owner at all, except for the fact that the key belongs to a man. He tells the detective that he could pick the owner out of a lineup, though. Epps manages to keep his frustration in check and thanks Joel before leaving. It's not quite the lead Epps was hoping for, but it's something. And anyway, he has a theory brewing. He thinks that the dead woman was a stranger to Richmond. After all, hundreds if not thousands of people have visited the morgue in an attempt to identify her, yet no one has been able to. Could she be an out-of-towner? If so, why had she come to Richmond in the first place? Did she travel to the city to meet with her killer? Epps thinks that if she was a visitor, she probably would have checked into a hotel. So he starts visiting boarding houses and inns and eventually finds someone who matches the dead woman's description at the American Hotel in the northwest of the city. It's a grand hotel, five stories tall and built from gray stone. It sits on top of a hill, overlooking the city and the winding river below. An American flag, protruding from the pole on the building's roof, flaps in the strong wind. Inside, Epps walks across the marble floor to the hotel desk. The lobby's large, 
and contains a couple of velvet couches and low wooden drink tables. Epps approaches the besuited man behind the desk. According to the clerk, the woman checked in at 4 a.m. on the day of the murder. She used the name F. L. Merton. She didn't have much baggage, aside from an exquisitely decorated linen satchel. The clerk had been so distracted by her beauty that he failed to notice that she hadn't completed all the check-in details. Frustratingly, she hadn't filled in the section noting her hometown. The clerk tells him that Merton was probably around five feet tall with brown hair styled in the latest fashion. She was slim and probably in her early 20s and gave off an air of sophistication. Epps is intrigued. This Merton woman fits the description of the body in the morgue to a T. Now, according to the clerk, at midday on March 13th, one of the hotel porters delivered a letter to Merton's room. Not long after, Merton approached another porter and asked him to deliver a letter of her own. The intended recipient was a man named Thomas J. Cluviers, who was staying at a nearby hotel. The porter hurried off, but returned soon after still bearing the letter. According to him, Cluviers was not present at the Davis House Hotel. When he told Merton, she seemed sad and said she no longer required his services. The clerk tells the detective that when Merton checked out, the note was found torn up in the room's trash can. Could the pieces of the note still be in the hotel's garbage? Well, there's only one way to find out. Epps rushes to the hotel garbage room, where he's met by a mountain of trash. Most of the loose trash has been pushed up against the back wall. There are scraps of paper, greasy leftover food, and some stained and torn clothing. There's also a couple of broken desk chairs awaiting repair by the janitor. Holding his breath, Epps approaches the wall of trash and starts looking through it. It's time-consuming, not to mention filthy work. The smell of rotten food is horrible. Once or twice, he retches and has to leave the room to get away from the overpowering stench. But his persistence pays off. Among the scraps of food and dirty bedsheets, Epps manages to locate the shredded fragments of the letter. When he pieces the three torn strips together, the message reads, I will be there as soon as possible, so please do wait for me. So, it seems that Merton and Clavier's meetup was prearranged. How did the two know each other? Maybe they were old friends or family, or maybe Clavier's was the father of her unborn child. At this point, there's no way to be sure. Later that night, on March 13th, Merton checked out and was seen meeting a young man outside the hotel before disappearing into the night. Now, the thing is, Epps can't even be sure that the woman called Merton is the same girl lying in the morgue. Sure, she matches the description given to him by the clerk, 
but he needs more evidence. So he heads off to the Davis House Hotel to see if he can track down Cluviers. Epps enters the Davis House Hotel and asks to speak with a clerk who was working on the weekend. While he waits, he glances around. The hotel's even fancier than Merton's, with checkerboard flooring and gold-trimmed mirrors on the walls. The clerk appears. Epps inquires if a man named Cluviers stayed in the hotel recently. The clerk tells him he did, that he was a regular visitor. His work as a lawyer frequently brought him to the city. From where? Epps asks. The clerk tells him that he lives in King and Queen County, in a place called Little Plymouth, an area in the countryside, about 50 miles to the east of Richmond. Claviers is from a respectable family. He's involved in the church and regularly teaches at Sunday school. In every way, he's seen as a man of good standing within the community. Now, Epps learns that Cluviers checked out of the hotel at 5 a.m. on the morning of March 14th, mere hours before the woman's body was found at the reservoir. Why would he check out so early from his hotel? Of course, there could be an innocent reason. Maybe he had urgent business to attend to back in his hometown. Perhaps there was a family emergency. Or there could be malevolence in his movement. He could have been fleeing the murder scene. Epps heads back to the station. It's a solid two-story red brick building, decorated simply, with arched windows and a double-wide door with frosted glass panels. Inside is much the same. The walls are covered in photographs of police officers, past and present, and the official insignia of the Richmond Police Force. A corkboard near the door is home to wanted posters and local advertisements. Epps greets the receptionist, who's feeding a page into a typewriter. Then, he stomps across the wooden floor to his office, trying to get some warmth in his feet. He's just sunk into his chair when two sisters enter, looking like they've seen a ghost. One of them's crying loudly. The other is just about holding it together, though her face is white as a sheet. Epps offers them both a seat and ask them what they know. Through her sobs, one of the sisters tells him that they've just been to the morgue. She knows who the dead woman is and gives Epps a name. Fanny Lillian Madison. Turns out she lives pretty close to where Cluviers is from. And get this, she's a direct descendant of James Madison, fourth president of the United States of America. Epps pressures the sisters for more details. Lillian, as she's preferred to be called, was a governess to a family in a town about 150 miles from Richmond. Her relationship with her own family was complicated. Her father and mother were poor and struggled to feed Lillian and her seven siblings while they were growing up. Tensions grew between Lillian and her father, who couldn't afford to send her to boarding school like she wanted to. Jane Tunstell, Lillian's rich aunt, offered to help with her education. And so, for a year, Lillian moved in with Tunstell and her family. 
And who should happen to live in the house alongside her? You guessed it, Cluvier's. You see, his home life was similar to Lillian's, except for the fact that his parents were happy to accept financial help. Cluvier's had been living with his aunt for most of his life. So Epps inquires as to their relationship and is told that Cluvier's and Lillian are cousins. According to the sisters, Lillian's father treated her badly. He would mock her and beat her, so she was only too happy to get away from him. When her aunt offered to pay for her second year's tuition, Lillian's father declined. He didn't like being indebted to his sister-in-law. This drove an even deeper wedge between father and daughter. Lillian wanted to be a schoolteacher, but gave up her dream in order to get away from home and her father as soon as she could. The sisters also expressed surprise that Lillian didn't contact them during her ill-fated trip to Richmond. She rarely visited the city, but when she did, they would all get together. Lillian would usually stay with them. Lillian's movements would suggest that she was trying to keep her visit to Richmond a secret. But why had she arranged to meet Cluvier's and not her friends? Epps can't be sure, but the sister's visit has been helpful. Epps now has two leads, one stronger than the other. The news that Lillian had an abusive father gives him food for thought. Epps knew he treated Lillian badly and crushed her dreams of becoming a teacher. Maybe her pregnancy out of wedlock was the final straw for him. It's a good motive, but to Epps, Clavier's seems like the most likely suspect. Epps doesn't think that Lillian's father would attract her down in Richmond. And anyway, the description of Lillian's companion in the city matches that of the 23-year-old lawyer. That night, Epps puts a plan in place. It's time to hunt down Thomas J. Cluvier's. The following morning, Epps and another officer set off from Richmond. It's another cold, cloudy day, but the horses pulling their carriages don't seem to mind. They're capable animals, and they make it to King William County in good time. The wide roads of the city become uneven dirt tracks, and the vast fields stretch out in every direction, green as far as the eye can see. Epps slows the horses in front of a modest house. Paint is peeling from the timber. The small garden is in danger of being overrun by weeds. He walks to the porch and knocks on the door. Lillian's mother answers. It's clear that Epps has traveled quite a distance. His clothes are covered in dust and dirt from the roads, and he looks tired. Lillian's mother invites him in, and the father joins him in the living room not long after. Epps informs them of the news that their daughter has been killed. Parents are horrified. The mother faints, and the father, he struggles to keep his emotions in check. Once they've had time to digest the information, Epps asks them to tell him about Lillian. 
From the way they talk about her, it's clear that they haven't seen her in some time, and they're probably unaware of the fact that she was pregnant. Talk quickly turns to her love life. Epps assumes that she would have many suitors due to her obvious beauty. Turns out she didn't. Not that the parents knew about anyway. The only man that ever paid her attention was Cluvier's, but it's hardly a good match. Cluvier's is due to marry a woman called Miss Bray in two weeks' time. And anyway, Lillian and he were cousins after all. Now, let's just pause for a moment. The practice of cousins marrying had been widely accepted for centuries. But American states started banning family relationships in 1858. While the law remained unchanged in Virginia at the time of this case, the feeling that it was becoming a taboo had altered the population's thoughts, especially those belonging to the upper classes. Okay, now let's get back to Epps. When he's learned all he can, Epps leaves and hightails it to Clavier's house. On the way, he considers what he's learned. If Clavier's is the murderer, what were his motives? Maybe there was some sort of family rivalry, or the cousins had a falling out with each other. Or maybe one of Epps' original thoughts was true. If Clavier's was the father of the unborn baby, perhaps he wanted it gone. After all, a respectable lawyer bringing a baby into the world outside of wedlock with his cousin would be catastrophic. It would destroy his reputation, not to mention his thriving law practice and his standing in society. His thinking time comes to an end as he stops outside Clavier's residence. It's an impressive place, set back from the road and placed in the middle of a vast expanse of land. It's built from white timber with gray shutters flanking the many windows. There's a large wraparound porch with a selection of chairs sheltered by an overhanging roof. At the door, the detective is met by a servant who fetches Clavier's. He appears a moment later, and Epps gets his first look at the talented lawyer. He's a tall man with thick brown hair and intelligent eyes. He's wearing a tailored suit and a white shirt with long sleeves. Epps introduces himself, making sure to keep his eyes locked on Clavier's. If there's any fear in him, he keeps it well hidden. Epps informs him of Lillian's death, but the news doesn't seem to bother him. He simply shrugs and asks why that is any concern to him. Pretty cold, huh? I mean, Lillian was family. Either Clavier's is completely innocent of the crime or a sociopath who's a master of concealing his true feelings. Epps tells him that they'd like him to help identify the body. The detective wants Clavier's to think that the police need his help, rather than view him as a suspect. Clavier's agrees to go to Richmond, but only after he finishes his dinner. It strikes Epps as odd, 
and a little bit arrogant, but follows him through the house to the dining room. The table is long, made from dark wood and laden with platters of food. Epps sinks into the empty seat by Clavier's, and they engage in idle chit-chat. And then, Epps gets his first clue that Clavier's may not be quite as innocent as he's pretending to be. The lawyer reaches to the center of the table to spoon some more food onto his plate. The movement causes the sleeve of his shirt to ride up, exposing his hand. On the back, there are three scratches. They look deep and swollen and are approximately six centimeters long. Epps knows defensive wounds when he sees them. When Clavier's notices that his injured hand is visible, he quickly pulls his cuff, covering it again with his sleeve. He casts a guilty look towards the detective, but Epps pretends not to have noticed anything. After dinner, Clavier's asks if Epps would like to stay the night. Epps says no, he wants to get back to Richmond as soon as possible. He doesn't want to give Clavier's any time to think up or arrange an alibi. Epps follows Clavier's to his room, where the young man wants to get changed before the long journey. He begins collecting items from around the room and setting them carefully into a case. As Clavier's bends down to place some clothes into it, his watch falls from his pocket. He snatches it up quickly. His movements are frantic. Clavier stuffs it into the case, below a pile of clothes, but not before Epps gets a good look at it. The watch is made of gold and decorated elegantly. However, some of the links in the chain are bent and damaged, and the key is missing. This could be a major clue, but Epps decides to bide his time. He knows if he asks too many questions, Clavier's might well shut down on him. He is a lawyer, after all, and knows better than anyone that the evidence against him is circumstantial. Epps needs Clavier's to be a willing interviewee, so he keeps quiet about the scratches and the broken watch. For now. Clavier's excuses himself and enters the toilet. There's a mahogany trunk in the corner of the room that Epps decides to search in his absence. He doesn't know what he's looking for exactly, but hopes that something will jump out. There are legal documents that Epps assumes are linked to Clavier's job and innocent correspondence with family members. Everything in here seems above board. But then, underneath a stack of papers, he finds a bundle of letters. The envelopes are tattered, suggesting that Clavier's handles them regularly. Epps opens one and slips out the piece of paper from inside. It's a letter from a woman declaring her love and affection for him. It's signed Lillian. Now, Epps knows that Clavier's is due to marry Miss Bray in two weeks' time. So it appears he and his cousin have been having a sordid affair. As quickly as he can, Epps pockets the letters and hurries back to his chair. Just in time, too, Clavier's returns and declares he's ready to leave. Epps leads Clavier's to the waiting carriage. It's a risky strategy, 
Epps hasn't informed his superiors of his plan to bring Cluviers in. They'd most certainly have said no. After all, Cluviers is from a well-known and influential family. If the lawyer can prove his innocence, Epps knows that it'll be him who's looking for another job in the near future. Still, he's convinced that won't happen. They have eyewitnesses in the American Hotel stating that a man matching Cluvier's description met with Lillian in Richmond on the day of her death. They also have his missing watch key, the scratches on his hand, the love letters, and the fact that he left the hotel in the early hours of the morning following his cousin's death. The journey to the station takes a couple hours. Cluviers doesn't seem nervous. In fact, he regales them with tales from his profession and his good company. When they arrive in the early hours of the morning, Cluviers is led inside and is taken directly to an interview room. The shock is clear to see on his face. He thought he was here to identify his cousin's body. He behaves like a gentleman, but the fear is now obvious in his eyes. Before Cluviers can get settled or demand to know what's going on, the detective sits down opposite him. He retrieves the pocket watch from Cluvier's traveling case and sets it on the table between them. Epps makes a big deal of examining the broken links. He then asks Cluvier's to explain why his watch key was found close to the place of the murder. It's a risky move. After all, he doesn't know for sure that the key he found at the reservoir belongs to the man sitting opposite him. Epps just hopes that his bluff pays off. Cluviers claims that the key found in the reservoir grounds isn't his. The key he owns is safely attached to a chain at home. Epps doesn't buy it. And so, he goes for broke. He pulls the key from his pocket and inserts it into the watch hole. And guess what? It's a perfect fit. As Claviers reaches out to grab the watch, Epps pins his hand to the table and points to the vicious red scratches. Claviers shrugs and explains that he was doing some gardening at his aunt's house and his hand got caught in some thorns. It seems the lawyer has an answer for everything. As Epps is about to press Claviers further, a police officer interrupts proceedings. He tells Epps that he has visitors. Now, who could this be? When Epps enters the main room in the station, Lillian's parents are waiting for him. They've come to identify the body. They move to the privacy of Epps' office, where Lillian's father tells the detective a story. It's a story about Cluviers. He claims that Cluviers visited their house the previous summer, asking for Lillian. He was told that Lillian was staying with her grandfather, who lived just a few miles away. Cluviers traveled there, and he spent the night. The story all but confirms Epps' theory. Cluviers' nighttime visit happened eight months ago. As a reminder, Lillian was almost exactly eight months pregnant at the time of her death. It doesn't take a genius to figure out what's going on here. 
the baby was Clavier's. Epps is more convinced than ever of Clavier's guilt. He marches towards the holding cells and looks through the bars at the lawyer. He's sitting on his bed, staring straight ahead. It's impossible to know what he's thinking. Epps slides the cell door open and approaches Clavier's. The lawyer rises to meet him. Epps reads him his rights and arrests him for the murder of Lillian Madison. Clavier's nods once and sits down again, showing no expression. Clavier's trial date is set for mid-May. That gives Epps just over a month to find enough hard evidence to convince the jury of the lawyer's guilt. It's May 13th, 1885, the day of Clavier's trial. The case has become a sensation. Members of the press are gathered outside the courthouse, along with throngs of curious onlookers. Reporters jostle with each other, and cameramen hold their heavy equipment at the ready, knowing they might only get one opportunity for that all-important picture. A carriage arrives, and an excited roar goes up as police officers help a handcuffed Clavier's out of the back. His face is expressionless as he's led up the front steps and into the building. Throughout the trial, Clavier's continues to maintain his innocence, but there's a solid case brought against him. A sex worker called Mary Curtis takes it to the stand. She claims that Clavier's was a regular visitor to the city's red light district. According to her testimony, Clavier's brought a woman matching Lillian's description to a house of ill repute on the day of her murder. They rented a room, and that's when she stopped speaking. She leaves it to the judge to imagine what went on behind closed doors. Various witnesses tell the court that Clavier's and Lillian were seen all over town on March 13th. They visited bars, brothels, and bizarrely, a nail salon. It's understood that they were in Richmond in search of an abortionist. And because of how far along the pregnancy was, no one would do it. Clavier's never admits to the baby being his, but Epps is convinced of the fact. The most damning piece of evidence is the watch key. The jeweler, Herman Joel, confirms that the key found on the reservoir's grounds belonged to the man on trial. Joel recognizes Clavier's from when he visited the shop to get the timepiece repaired. Now, the defense tries to paint Clavier's in a favorable light, but it doesn't work. The jury are convinced that Clavier's was the man who beat Lillian before shoving her into the gloomy waters of the city's old reservoir. At 9.30 p.m. on June 4th, 1885, they announced that Clavier's is guilty of murder in the first degree. His fate is sealed when the judge sets the date for his execution. On January 14, 1887, almost two years from the death of Lillian Madison, Thomas J. Cluviers 
is hanged in front of a large crowd. Captain Charles Henry Epps dies 10 years later in 1897 at the age of 57. Not much is known about his policing career. What's clear is that it was his tenacity that led the police to the door of Clouvier's. And while other cops might have given up on the case because of a lack of clues, Epps didn't. It was him who fought for and won justice for Fanny Lillian Madison. Next time on Detectives Don't Sleep. We're in Los Angeles in the year 1920. Private detectives Carl Armstrong and Nick Harris are investigating a robbery instigated by two men pretending to be from their agency. But what starts out as a robbery investigation quickly escalates into something much bigger. The heist is simply the starting pistol for one of the most bizarre cases they'll ever be involved in. This case will bring them into the orbit of a man so depraved and calculating that he sounds like a creation from the mind of Alfred Hitchcock. However, this man and this tale of excess and cold-blooded murder really happened. That's next time on Detectives Don't Sleep.